0: Welcome to this episode of The Crit. After a week stuck in the Suez Canal, we're now back on the high seas and sailing towards your audio enjoyment.
1: My name is Christina Rapatsky and I'm one of your co-captains.
0: And my name is Ollie Stratford, back on the brig after some time spent in my storage container.
1: I very much enjoyed the uh, ever-given being stuck for a week. It was sort of the ship that launched a thousand (laughs) memes, but I'm also kind of glad that it's now... uh unstuck so that we can uh, all get on with our lives again and talk about other things
0: yeah it was remarkable i think it's the jolliest i've ever seen the collapse of global commerce be like <laughs> it was an extraordinary amount wasn't it it's an, i saw a statistic saying it's about 10 billion in trade every day yeah that yeah. the the clogged canal was causing
1: and just seeing some of the like aerial maps of how other ships had to reroute was extraordinary <laughs> the
0: cape of good hope back in the <laughs> <Yeah>. news. <laughs>
1: after 150 years (laughs) we're back
0: baby (laughs) you all said you could do without me well i'm back (laughs) and more dangerous than ever
1: no it's been it's been an extraordinary week in canal and shipping news
0: i was actually going to um peel back the curtain a little bit i don't know if readers of Desenio, the journal we put out will know this, but we actually nearly covered the Suez Canal once. It was a couple of years ago when it was being widened, when they did that big (laughs) programme, clearly not widened enough. But we we came very close. We had a photographer who really wanted to go and document it all, which would have been great if it could have happened.
1: What scuppered it? I can't remember. Why didn't we do it?
0: I think it was expense in the end. Hmm. Because obviously, as shown by the Ever Given, you kind of want to shoot it from the air. So I think we needed like a helicopter and things like that. And I don't know if listeners are familiar with the economic models of independent publishing, but hiring a helicopter is um, maybe slightly beyond our means. (laughs) yeah I think we were I think we were trying to put together presentations to like the canal operator to persuade them why they should fund this uh, mm. this project and why it would be great for them to have all this imagery <laughs> of the canal being widened in a in a design journal.
1: Now they get all of the internet's memes instead So first off, some industry news, the Saloni. A very important event in the design calendar.
0: I think uh, trademark the most important event in the design calendar.
1: So last year, they uh, pinned down a date for it in September rather than April, which is when it usually happens. So I think the 5th to the 10th of September is the current date that we have. Now, however, there's uh, a little bit of um, uncertainty around whether or not this is going to go ahead physically.
0: Yeah, which is not surprising because... Italy has obviously suffered a lot under coronavirus. I think in the statistics, it's it's only behind the UK, right? Mm. And obviously, a third wave is now kicking in on the continent. So, I mean, September feels a way off, but it must be very difficult to plan whether this is actually going to be feasible.
1: So I think the organisers have revealed that they have a sort of digital version of the event right. planned.
0: I think that seems sensible because... You know, going forward, hundreds of thousands of people go to these events. I think Salone has, is it around 300,000 visitors normally? Yeah. Something like that, which is an extraordinary amount of people to bring together from disparate places in one relatively small European city.
1: And then there's also this uh, issue of health passports or um, digital green certificates that the EU has proposed, but that we don't have very much information about Uh, right.
0: This is what you get given if you've you've been tested and don't have it or if you've had your vaccination or something like that.
1: Exactly. Something that's going to allow you to move across borders, basically. That's been proposed, but not kind of uh, set out in any great detail as to when that's going to be implemented or how it's going to work. So there's a lot that's up in the air. I heard someone try to launch on Twitter the uh, hashtag Fidgetal.
0: What's Fidgetal?
1: It's a portmanteau between physical and digital. That's a horrible oh, horrible word.
0: I don't think that works. It just makes me think of fidgeting.
1: Yes, yes, exactly.
0: It makes me think of nervousness. Like if someone went, do you want to come to our fidgetal conference or our, our fidgetal uh, trade fair? It it doesn't it doesn't do it for me.
1: No, it doesn't sound like a, a pleasant event to attend. It sounds like something that will give you anxiety. I was just going to say that the reason I bring up Fidgetal is that obviously because of these dates, the September dates having been announced earlier, a lot of Fuori Saloni events. So for those who don't know, Fuori Saloni is like the the smaller exhibitions and displays that sit outside of the main fair. Those smaller independent projects, they've probably already booked their space and it's, you know, they're not going to see 300,000 people uh, come through their spaces. So they may well still go ahead. And so we might have this kind of hybrid fair potentially where there could still be physical displays to look at around the city, just not the huge a commercial fair. I
0: wonder if that fidgetal idea, though, will become the norm moving forward. Because I would have thought that lots of brands, even knowing that Salone was announced to take place in September, would have been nervous about booking spaces or planning things for that festival. Mm. Um, it, it's a lot to invest if you're not entirely certain it's going to happen, and if you're going to get audiences there. And that's going to stay the same for a while. I mean, even as the vaccine programs kick in. Presumably, there's still going to be a long period where these vast trade fairs aren't happening in the way that they used to.
1: I think you're absolutely right. Let's just not call them fidgetal.
0: So our second story of the day is good news for fans of codebreakers, mathematics and the development of computers everywhere. This is the news that Alan Turing, uh, the British scientist, has been selected as the figure to appear on the reverse of the new £50 polymer note.
1: It's a very handsome note indeed. It's just been unveiled and uh, it features a number of things. Not only a picture of Turing, portrait of him taken in 1951, but some details relating to his life and work.
0: What have we got on there?
1: So there's a mathematical table. From one of Turing's most famous academic papers that he published in the thirties and that paper was called On Computable Numbers with an application to the Entscheidungsproblem.
0: What is the Entscheidungs problem?
1: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but Entscheidung means decision in German. So maybe it's something to do with like binaries. Yeah. That is my that's my guess. It also has some other cryptic things like Turing's birth year in binary code. It, oh, that's nice. That's a nice one. Yeah, in a sort of ticker tape representation. And it's got a quote from him. This is only a foretaste of what is to come and only a shadow of what is going to be, which he gave in an interview with the Times in 1949. I suppose pointing to his, his legacy, his, re- his extraordinary legacy in computing,
0: So for anyone who doesn't know Alan Turing, he was a really influential figure in the development of computers in the 20th century. He developed the Turing machine and uh, the Turing test and things like that. So hugely influential in that realm and also a massive practical impact. He was one of the codebreakers working at Bletchley Park uh, during the Second World War. And he was influential in cracking the codes to the Enigma machine. The
1: German military messaging machine. So, um, yeah, hugely influential, not really recognised for that influence in his lifetime, really. Turing was also gay and he was treated horrifically for it. He was arrested in 1952, I think. And that was uh, quite a while still until homosexuality was legalised in the United Kingdom, which happened in 1967. So this feels like a significant moment as well for LGBTQ rights and visibility.
0: Yeah, it's hugely important. So the, the other notes in the UK currency, you have the Churchill £5, the Jane Austen £10, and the Turner £20. And Turing's addition to that, I think he's the first LGBTQ plus person to appear on those notes. Uh, so that's hugely influential. And I think also banknotes are such a symbol in a sense of the nation and at the moment there's a huge amount of debate around Winston Churchill obviously and some of his legacy and some of the more problematic elements of that but he's seen as very emblematic of the UK and of the UK state so to have someone featured on the £50 note who was very publicly and clearly let down by the state I mean Turing was chemically castrated by the state for the avoidance of doubt Mm. um that that is quite significant i think
1: he he chose that over prison he did didn't he? and
0: 2 years later he took his own life yeah. um uh, cyanide poisoning so to honor someone who was so badly betrayed by the state and subject to cruel and unjust laws is a real is a real improvement
1: yeah, i also think it's interesting that physical currency is it's become almost purely symbolic now right i mean, we we do it has some utility in that we use cash Still can use cash, but especially in the year that's been, with lots of um, businesses going contactless and preferring card payments and actually not even accepting cash, then this this realm of physical money has become, I don't know, it feels like the most important dimension of it is its symbolic value.
0: Yeah, I think it's what does it say about the nation? How does it reflect what the nation wants to be? And. Honestly, in, in a time in which the UK is subject to rising nationalism and this slightly blinkered pride in Britain's past, I think choring is a really inspiring choice. And I think there's something very positive about having him given his story on that note.
1: So the last really kind of high profile new note was the Jane Austen note from I think five or six years ago, which the campaigner and journalist Caroline Criado Perez campaigned for successfully. And um, she
0: was a good choice. And I think, nice in the area of having a writer. When you think of Britain, lots of people, I guess the mind immediately goes to Shakespeare. So yeah. it was rather refreshing to have uh, Jane Austen on there. Really good yeah, choice. Yeah, really
1: good choice. Uh, and I suppose there has been some talk about the 50 note also featuring a woman in the lead up to this. It's maybe worth saying that Turing as you said, worked at Bletchley Park, and Bletchley Park was, was the sort of code, code-breaking and intelligence secret central during the Second World War, for those who aren't familiar with it, and it's noteworthy that about 75% of staff there were women, a lot of them working in administration, but quite a few also working in code-breaking roles. That's something that, that that ought to be acknowledged, that Turing was, of course, hugely, hugely, hugely significant. But he was also working within this context.
0: Yeah, I, I think in some ways it is a shame that a woman wasn't selected for the 50, because traditionally women haven't been particularly represented in those positions of honour on the notes, outside of the Queen, obviously, who who snaffles up all the notes. Um, and I think particularly in an area like the sciences, which are so male-dominated and there remains a problem attracting women to those fields, it would have been really nice to have someone like uh, Ada Lovelace or mm. Rosalind Franklin. But at the same time, it's important to consider other areas of diversity and He is the first LGBTQ plus person to appear on the note too. And that's significant as well. You want representation in that area, I think, as well as in gender.
1: So the Serpentine Galleries here in London, gallery in Hyde Park.
0: Fine institutions.
1: Commissioner of the Serpentine Pavilion, very important architectural pavilion. Uh, they've done a rebranding on their website and uh, quietly removed all mention of the Sacklers.
0: Oh, that is a big change because one of the two galleries is called the Serpentine Sackler Gallery, right? That's
1: right, yeah. The... Or, or no longer. No, well, <laughs> the gallery formerly known as uh, Sackler Serpentine. It's now called the North Gallery, even in the archival posts on the website, it's referred to as the North Gallery rather than as the Sackler Gallery. It was called the Sackler Gallery originally because it was funded by the Sackler family, opened in 2013, I think, and it was a huge $7.3 million donation from the Sacklers that helped them open that space.
0: Right, and in case anyone doesn't know, the Sackler family are hugely controversial. So the Sacklers were the owners of Purdue Pharma. So Purdue Pharma was the drug maker behind OxyContin, a drug which has been strongly linked and held responsible for the opioid crisis in the US.
1: Yes, and in the last few years, it's been revealed that actions of members of the Sackler family who have run Purdue Pharma have been deeply, deeply, deeply unethical in that they pushed the drug knowing how... uh...
0: Addictive
1: knowing how addictive it is there were even sort of payouts to doctors for for prescribing it and like really 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 dirty dealings
0: right and I think they're up to their eyeballs in lawsuits at the moment and Paju Pharma is going through bankruptcy so they're they're trying to reach deals with various US states which are suing them I think so far without a huge amount of success but the Sackler family haven't admitted any wrongdoing yet is my understanding And this is interesting because the Sacklers famously are a great art washers. They funded an awful lot of cultural institutions to put their name on that and have the Sackler name linked to art and culture as opposed to opioids and suffering.
1: Yeah, it feels like an age ago because of the pandemic. But 2019, I would say, was really the year when this became very, very visible. And lots of institutions pledged not to take funding from the Sacklers anymore. Serpentine was one of them.
0: So why is the Serpentine rebranding? Is it in connection to the Sacklers?
1: Well, they say it's not connected to the Sacklers. A spokesperson's come out and said that it has nothing to do with an attempt to distance themselves from them. That it's a a rebranding and they got a new name for the gallery and that's, that's that.
0: It's actually quite difficult to change these names sometimes though because often as part of the deal, the donation of money comes with naming rights. And if you then change the name... They can take the money back.
1: Yeah, and I don't know how that's going to play out with the Serpentine. According to reports, the Sackler name still appears on the building itself, uh, just not on the website.
0: Right. It's an interesting development because I know one of the stumbling blocks with this bankruptcy plan in the US had been a few states have said it doesn't go far enough and that they actually want sort of non-profits, museums and galleries to be able to remove the Sackler name from their spaces. So nearly every museum will have a room or a wing named after the Sackler. Mm. They were incredibly... uh, incredibly frequent benefactors
1: university departments as well people whose job titles have the Sackler in it Sackler curators and Sackler research fellows
0: but I think lots of legislators think that as part of this deal there should be protections given to those institutions that they can rename without fear of having the uh the funding removed Christina, what does Satan put on the end of his dainty hoofs when he goes outside?
1: Um, Satan shoes.
0: Well, of course. Obviously, to keep his hoofs in good working order. Uh, Finally this week, we've been given a little insight into what kicks the Dark Lord likes.
1: Oh, this is, uh, these are the Nikes that aren't really Nikes. They're by a brand called Mischief. (laughs) Mischief.
0: (laughs) Mischief. They leave all the vowels out. They
1: leave all the vowels out, which is something I thought we stopped doing in 2010, but, um... (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> muster by satanic appointments <laughs> to his dark majesty
1: so this is a brooklyn-based company that's been described by the new york times as quirky and they have put out a quirky quirky pair of shoes called the satan shoes and they're trainers that are actually made by nike and uh, they've added some uh, some human blood to the soul as an SOLE.
0: They have, yeah. They've taken blood from members of the team and worked it into the sole. And then they've sort of customised these Nikes. So they're Nike Air Max 97s, but they've been heavily modded, both with like usual little tweaks like um, new detailing and things like that, and also by putting blood in the sole. Can I ask, do you like the trainers?
1: No, not particularly. <laughs> do you like the Satan shoes?
0: I don't like them either. I think they're really stupid. But the project they're a part of, I do kind of like. So they're a collaboration with the musician mm-hmm. Little Nas X. And they've been put together uh, to come out as merchandise for his uh, his new song and music video, Montero, Call Me By Your Name.
1: Mm. This is the music video where he gives the the devil a lap dance
0: he does I watched it uh, I watched it ahead of the podcast and I really liked it actually it's unbelievably camp it's very <laughs> very camp and fun and high sort of ludicrous sci-fi production values and then has uh Naz descending to the underworld on a stripper's pole
1: <laughs> yes yes exactly and then uh, w- he walks right up to the prince of darkness himself in his thigh-high boots and uh, gives him a really good lap dance I mean, I think it looks like a good laptop.
0: Satan doesn't look very pleased during it. He's sort of quite nonplussed for much of it.
1: He looks unruffled by the experience, yeah.
0: Actually, I think he grabs Naz's buttocks at one point. Oh, really? Yeah, Mm. I think he does start to get into it.
1: Okay. Well, it's interesting because it's being sold as a collaboration between Mischief and uh, Lil Nas X, but it's obviously working from a product that Nike has put out and they've distanced themselves from this. She should add that they didn't distance themselves from the Jesus shoes, which Mischief put out a little while back, which were imbued with holy water from the River Jordan. But the satanic ones were, uh, were a step too far. And so they've actually, I read this morning, they've sued.
0: Right. I mean, I, I can understand that they don't want it connected to the brand, but I... I'm sort of for it, I think, on the whole, because I do think the song has attracted a lot of venom on social media from right-wing commentators who and Christian commentators who have issues with the use of satanic imagery. But from watching it, it's a lot about Naz's status as a gay man and accepting that and being proud of it and being upfront about his sexuality and celebrating that, and I mean the worlds he works in—rap and country music—are not exactly famous for their openness to widespread
1: um, embrace of other than heteronormative uh, behaviors. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. So mm. I, I think the product itself is bad, <laughs> but I, I quite like it's. It's he's clearly not a devil worshiper. <laughs> That's not the point.
1: No, I watched the video. He- <laughs> I think he clearly is a devil worshipper. <laughs> well,
0: he snaps the devil's neck at the end of it. He defeats... Oh, um, that's true. He defeats the devil like, uh, like Jesus in the desert. Yeah. Jesus didn't snap his neck. He did it in other ways. But you work with what you've got.
1: But it's basically the same. And yeah, very similar. you're right. Now, we want to finish off our news segment with some sad news, which is that... Zev Aram, the designer and retailer, founder of the Aram Gallery and the Aram store, has passed away.
0: Yeah, it's very sad news because Zev Aram is is one of those lions and giants of 20th century British design. He played a huge role in bringing Italian design to the UK, people like Castiglione, also uh, Breuer, for instance, and the Bauhaus. The Aram store, when he opened in the sixties in uh, West London, was one of the first places doing this.
1: When when that opened, Britain had sort of come around to the idea of modernist architecture, and it'd sort of come around to the idea of uh, modernist product design as well. But interior design and furniture was still sort of lagging behind a little bit, and there really weren't that many places where you could buy modern furniture or what we would think of as modern and modernist furniture
0: no completely zev arum was one of the people who really changed that and introduced that new more modern aesthetic to the home i think along with terence Conran, for instance who sadly passed last year as well um zev was a real a real symbol of that uh, opening up of the of british retail to design and what it could be in the home
1: when he opened his first shop in uh, in the king's road which is where it was all happening in the 1960s in London. Uh, people were kind of horrified because he had a, a, a an all-glass display and it was just steel and tubular steel furniture in there and people hadn't seen anything like it. But he quickly found himself a number of quite high-profile clients and, uh, you know, you had like Vogue photographers would go in there. David Hockney, the painter, would buy his furniture. He painted furniture that he bought from Aram in quite a number of portraits. In addition to... Introducing the Bauhaus, some of the Bauhaus masters to British audiences and some Italian designers, like you mentioned. He also revived almost single handedly uh, the Irish designer Eileen Gray and her designs, which is uh, something that he when he was looking back at his career in an interview, he said that 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 was one of his greatest achievements.
0: Yeah, and I think his work with Grey is quite emblematic of the man because a lot of people who are so associated with a particular era in design become very stuck there and Zev Aram is very emblematic of the 60s, both through his retail and his own design work. But he was someone who adapted and changed with design and a lot of younger designers Mm. in the 90s and 2000s would credit Zev Aram and particularly the work he did with Aram Gallery as offering them a space to show off their work and to show off some cutting-edge contemporary material experimentation. So he w- he wasn't really a man I think who who got stuck in the past or that era he introduced himself in.
1: No absolutely I think he moved from Chelsea in the late 70s when rents got too high and relocated to Covent Garden and it was in the early 2000s I think that the Drury Lane site uh, which is where the Aram store still is today that he moved in there, and yeah, the Aram Gallery on the top floor. You had to <laughs> go up all those stairs uh, to see these great exhibitions with young designers' works and uh, emerging emerging talent. That he would, uh, I think, personally go around to degree shows and look for and invite to to display their work there. So some some really significant contemporary designers have had their first shows in the in the Aram Gallery also.
0: Yeah, I think he'll—he's someone who will be very much missed, and who leaves a huge legacy behind him. Um, and all of our sympathies go to um, his wife Liz and their children, Deborah, Karen, and Daniel. Um, Daniel, at the moment, uh, runs Aram and uh, continues that. So our thoughts are with all of the family. <laughs> So, on to our projects and products section. And the first thing we're going to be looking at is Stretch, a new robot from Boston Dynamics.
1: This is the warehouse robot, isn't it? It's not a cute kind of uh, dog like Spot or a bumbling man like Atlas that they put out before. But uh, sort of. Uh...
0: <laughs> Both of which I think are quite terrifying. <laughs> I mean, you said cute, but I find Spot very sinister. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Spot is, uh, I think, one of the most frightening things ever created. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, Stretch is a sort of plinth on wheels with a big robotic arm. And the idea is it can move around a warehouse and fit in around uh, people working there and uh, use this arm to move boxes around, basically. And
1: the arm has a suction pad, doesn't it? It, it kind of goes whip and... Uh, yeah, yeah, like, like an, an octopus. octopus. But it can only really grab onto flat surfaces. So it's not as spectacular looking as Boston Dynamics' other robots, but it maybe represents more the direction in which they seem to be looking at the moment, into this more logistical Side of robotics.
0: Yeah, I think so. They've previously done something called Handle, which was a similar idea. It was a robot that could move around the um, a warehouse, but I think it was it was too slow in the end. It, it didn't offer any advantage. I, th- I find Boston Dynamics a strange company because I'm not always mm-hmm. entirely clear what it is they do or who these robots they're producing are for.
1: Oh, they they make robots that they then film. So that people can share them on Twitter, right? And go, ooh.
0: Yeah, they make robots for public delight. Look
1: at look at look at how freaky this robot dancing to downtown funk is. <laughs> That's the point of Boston Dynamics. Yeah, they're right?
0: strange because they've they've never really communicated much about what they do. And they've said a couple of things in the past about uh maybe working for military applications in future or not ruling that out, certainly. And Warehouse workers and the conditions in which warehouse workers uh, operate for giants like Amazon are obviously a huge issue at the moment, and lots of people are worried about that and talking about that. So it's slightly worrying to see Boston Dynamics stepping in to try and resolve that, given that they're a company often associated with dystopian futures (laughs) and uh, robot cruelty. Unfairly, I should should add, as far as I know, they they haven't turned their robots against their fellow man yet
1: i think the thing that should be said about stretch as well that's really significant you already mentioned it's it's a plinth on wheels but the on wheels bit is really important because there are sorting machines in warehouses in existence already but they tend to be to my understanding anyway kind of bolted to the floor and quite stationary anyway whereas this this guy (laughs) this little guy this little arm can uh, move around
0: yeah that's right and I mean we'll have to see how it goes I think they're hoping it will start being sold in 2022 but then I was looking into this and I found a report from the Centre for Investigative Reporting which has found that Amazon's use of robots in its warehouses has led to more injuries for human workers
1: oh well what type of injuries
0: I'm sure the bulk of these are minor incidents, but apparently at the most common kind of Amazon Fulfillment Centre, uh, serious injuries are 50% higher for those that have robots than those without it. So, I mean, there may be something in automating some of these processes. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say and complex when you look into that. But clearly, at least to date, safety hasn't perhaps been the best when you begin creating these semi-automated workstations.
1: No, it makes me think of bigger questions around automation and, the, you know, and what constitutes valuable work as well, because those jobs, like you say, um, in Amazon warehouses, for instance, the workers are, are, are doing their jobs under really dehumanising conditions, you know, and um, there's reports of all sorts of horrors. Uh, there was that book by James Bloodworth a reporter who worked in an Amazon warehouse and gave a really really harrowing account of what the working conditions are like
0: right and those warehouses are also set up to be more naturally suited to robots in a sense as well right so don't work as where these sort of wrist mounted devices which guide them through because things aren't stopped yeah. where you would expect them to be as a human so it's not like well all the dvds are with the dvds and we keep all of yeah. the um uh, L- loose seats with the loose seats. <laughs> don't know why I went to loose seats second off. They're kept more by like buying habits mm. so sort of where an algorithm places them. So to actually find your way through, I think workers need to right. use one of these devices. so it's um sort of robot assisted already.
1: The device also monitors them and that's you know and and treats them like a robot basically that has certain certain targets that it needs to. Fulfill in a day. Anyway, it's all so. So, so there's a sense in which those jobs could be made better by Amazon and by the recruitment companies that recruit workers for the warehouses. That's one way of making that situation better. But then there's also this potential for these jobs to be completely automated, and uh, in a way horrible dehumanizing job taken over by a robot i feel like could be a good thing it's just then the, the big societal question that uh is thrown up by that is what you know what will people do for work
0: service the robots i suppose
1: change the suction pad put the oil in anyway that's stretch <laughs> yeah. uh on the market in 2022 right and then on to uh, a slightly more traditional piece of uh, furniture design Norman Copenhagen, Copenhagen-based furniture retailer, the clue's in the name, um, they put out a stool called The Bit.
0: Yeah, this is a piece by designer Simon Legald, and it's it's quite attractive. It's uh, a stool which looks a bit like a cider press, I think. It's a very simple oh, form. Oh,
1: that's a nice analogy.
0: Yeah, but it's made from recycled plastic, and it has a very distinctive aesthetic. Yeah,
1: yeah, this recycled plastic means that it's um, kind of flecked and has this terrazzo-like quality to it and uh, yeah I think it looks it looks really nice and very multi-purpose like it could be a coffee table and a stool and a you know flower stand uh, or anything you you want it to be really in your living room yeah
0: it's a right real flexible speckly chap and nice to see um, companies working with recycled materials and presenting them as something aesthetic and valuable it's definitely to be encouraged
1: absolutely Moy has an outdoor collection out. It's a family. Do you want to introduce the family?
0: I do. This is the Barani family uh, designed by Valerio Samella. So it's... The al-
1: Baranis. <laughs> they're a lovely bunch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they're nice pieces. So these are outdoor patio furniture, uh, chairs and tables, and they're all made from sort of loops of metal that wrap around each other. And what's quite sweet is a Barani is apparently a type of flip. Mm. in certain sports it's an aerial maneuver uh, a front flip and a 180 degree turn and I just thought that was quite a nice inspiration for a collection to have a particular movement or something from sports and athletics because normally when we hear about designers inspirations they're more things from nature like oh I saw the most fabulous leaf and I've had to make it into a storage system (laughs) or um, uh, well the power of the jaguar is what has informed the design of this chair (laughs) it's quite nice to have a movement and a and a, and a slightly different type of inspiration.
1: Moy is a company that's known for its whimsy and really embracing that, and I think this is in keeping with it. It's interesting you said that thing about nature because it, this made me think about a uh, Jugendstil. I didn't I didn't actually know about the flip, but you know, it made me think about that Art Nouveau Jugendstil era of sort of sinuous Sinuous shapes and yeah, um,
0: tendrils wrapping around each other. Yeah,
1: exactly. But there you go. It's all in the eye of the beholder.
0: It makes me think of Marcel Proust sat in one under a blanket, uh, having a digestif.
1: A little Madeleine.
0: Next thing we're going to look at is the reflection range. Um, the first in uh, apparently a trio of collaborations between the New York designer David Weeks and the London based lighting brand Tala.
1: Tala kind of known for reinventing the light bulb really. They've produced this little collection called Reflection with uh, with weeks and it's ve- it's very sweet. You've got the shape of the light bulb on these table lamps.
0: And Tala shapes are often very exaggerated. So light bulbs are great big soft squares or kind of inverted pyramids. Things like that, very bulbous satisfying shapes.
1: Exactly. So the shape of that light bulb are then mirrored in the shape of the base, uh, which is in porcelain. So it looks like they're uh, they're reflected in a in a quiet lake or some such thing. They're they're very beautiful.
0: Yeah, and I think it's interesting as well because these external design collaborations aren't something that Tala is known for. Actually, I think this is the first one I've seen. Maybe there have been there has been an earlier one, but it's certainly not, there.
1: They do a it's lot not their house. bread and butter. Yeah.
0: yeah, as a company, when they launched, I think around twenty fifteen, it was much more this in house design and sort of technical development of LEDs. So it's curious to see them going down the route of these collaborations now. I believe they have a new CEO, so perhaps this is a sign of things to come.
1: Finally we want to talk about some ultra realistic vinyl flooring
0: this is an interesting one so this is the vinyl flooring company uh tarquette who have developed a new range which is called id inspiration yeah
1: they've managed to recreate different surfaces in an ultra realistic manner so whether that's hardwood or marble or
0: rusted metal
1: yes (laughs) anything you want really moss (laughs) i don't know i don't actually know if moss is an an option so that would be quite nice. It would be nice. I mean, the pictures. I have to say, I know it's it's surface only, but the pictures do look extraordinarily realistic. I don't know about the texture itself.
0: No, and it's an interesting one because I think this sort of thing is very out of fashion and unusual within design. So much of contemporary design is based around this idea of truth to materials. If Mm. it's wood, make it look like wood type thing. Don't pretend, don't fake things. Whereas this is an entire collection based around this idea of illusion. So what if you wanted the look of a stone floor (laughs) but made of vinyl? Look, I have a lot of time for this truth to materials business. I think it results in some really nice products. But I think we all should appreciate that's a very vague thing. What does it mean to be true to a material? If vinyl can look like other materials, why is that not being true to the nature of vinyl, for instance? There's a degree of selection that goes on as to what is true to a material. So for a design-led brand, or a brand that identifies as design-led, it's more unusual to see this desire to play with artifice and camouflage, and to celebrate that.
1: Right, well that's a wrap. I'm quite eager to go outside and enjoy the sun, because spring has sprung in London after a very, very long winter. So uh, we're done here, I think.
0: We're sailing off into the distance.
1: It's been a pleasure to have you on board, and we will welcome you back in two weeks' time.
0: Did you know where the Evergiven ship is going now? It's been cleared from the Suez Canal. I don't. It's being it's being towed to the Great Bitter Lake.
1: Great Lake of Tears from all the consumers who haven't had their uh, their gadgets arrive on time.
0: Exactly. Now it's time for us to head off to the Great Bitter Lake of our own.
1: No, <laughs> oh, we're going out in the sun. <laughs> <laughs> speak for yourself
0: <laughs> I'm gonna stay inside and just cry
1: <laughs> all right well um, while we go off and do uh, our own thing you can get in touch with us on thecrit at designyomagazine.com if you want to send an email and if you're on twitter you can reach us on at thecrit design alternatively if you're on instagram uh, you can reach us on at thecrit podcast
0: we'll see you in two weeks time enjoy the sun <laughs>
1: In the crit, produced by Evie Hall and edited by Christina Rapatsky. Our jingle is by Yuri Suzuki and Team Suzuki at Pentagram.